Here's what it says in four short verses. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto the hearers. Experience is the best teacher, Julius Caesar. Roughly, experience is the teacher of all things. Experience is the best teacher. Another wrote, experience is the best teacher, and the worst experiences teach the best lessons. But we don't need to be defeatist as Christians now, do we? Still another one wrote, experience is the best teacher, especially when it's someone else's experience teaching me. And that's supposed to be the point of schooling or education, isn't it? To learn from other people, learning from someone else's experiences. There's a built-in sobriety and humility when we go to learn something. We take a class when we're in an educational setting. We're building on the institutional framework of someone that has gone before us when we learn things like how to write well or read well or think well or how to add well, subtract well, medicate well. We are to know our history and be thankful for the better in it and learn lessons from the failed experiences if we are to have betterment now, right? Wouldn't you agree? Another wrote, experience is the best teacher, but the tuition sure is high. Let me talk to children that are left among us, or I should say youth, because most of the children have gone to the program practice. Much of your schooling is to prepare you for the things that you haven't faced yet. That's why it's so easy to not care nearly enough when you're in the classroom, right? It's only the wise student who knows the aim of schooling is futuristic and takes heed of what he or she is learning in the classroom at the time. He or she knows there will come a time that the preparation will be over and the performance will begin, but the time has not yet come. You want to be as ready as you can for when you need the learning, the knowledge, the history, the preparation. Midterm tests simulate the pressures to come, but they're not going to be the same as the actual test on the day when something's on the line besides an A or a B or a C or a D in a classroom, right? Be a wise student today as you prepare to meet the challenges that your church hasn't fully faced yet. Be a wise student. Discover strength for now, for some of these things are already happening now in portion, but especially discover strength and comfort for when the time comes that you need it. Stow away this learning from these four verses today. Make not the mistake of not caring enough about your education now. Be a wise disciple a student, a learner. Listen to what Jesus says to church situations like the one in Smyrna in the late first century A.D. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen again to these four verses. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and last who died and came to life. We're going to see here that Christ helps us to prepare to suffer courageously by sharing His power. He's powerful. Now listen to verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Christ helps us to prepare to suffer courageously here by Him being personal with us. He's personal with us. Now verses 10 and 11. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the church is, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Here Christ helps us to prepare to suffer courageously 
faithfully by sharing His presence with us. And so we'll see in these verses, first in 8, how He prepares us with His power. In verse 9, with His personal touch. And then in verses 10 and 11, with His presence. So you'll see His power for you, His personal awareness of you, and His presence with you in these verses. And so as we prepare, let us listen to each of those points on part. First, Christ helps us to prepare to suffer courageously, even faithfully, by sharing His power. That's what we see in verse 8, as brief as it is. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Let's take that word angel first. What does he mean when he says angel? Well, angel is likely indicating a messenger to the church that was to carry this letter from the Apostle John who was exiled on the prison island of Patmos to the south in the sea. And this messenger was likely to carry the letter to the church, if not actually read the letter to the church. The church was to meant to be read and heard after it was written and transported. And so the letter was likely read by a messenger, and if I'm understanding it correctly, could have likely been a senior pastoral figure, a senior elder in the church. Now, the church at Smyrna would have been comforted by having a messenger to read this letter. And we should be comforted by our elders too. Now note that this is a church in Smyrna. It's written specifically to a church. But it's later going to say it's written to all the churches. So that any of us that have ears to hear can hear what the Spirit says to us. So this isn't just a point in time. This message is not. It's also a message for all time until Christ returns. And so we see the power of Christ to give us elders, to give us church family, to remind us of His power by His Word. Note His power, note his power as well in what comes next. It says, the words of. Before you get to of, it says the words, the words of. 250 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this, these exact Greek words are used this phrase translated the words of, this exact phrase is used to introduce a prophet's oracle. Here for the words of the Lord. The prophet would give an oracle. Here the risen Son in glory has the same phrase applied to Him. The words of. These are not just simply the words of a prophet as scriptural as all of them were. This is the words of the fulfillment of all the prophets. May that grip you. May the power of the speaker grip you. These words come from Jesus to church members. And His power is a comfort to us. It's a comfort to us as we prepare to suffer faithfully and well. It says, The angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last, who died and came to life. You may have heard this before. This self-designation of Christ is perfectly applied to each church based on the body of self-designations given in Revelation chapter 1. These are repeated from verses 17 and 18. Look at them on your page. It's probably the same page or just the page before in your print Bible. Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. This is a particularly relevant self-designation to remind the church at Smyrna about. Because the church at Smyrna is undergoing the prospect of persecution. It's not simply that John the Apostle has been exiled to an island and that's it. Nor is it simply that the powers that be are going after the church leaders only, although they did because they thought if they could squash the leader, they could squash the group. But also, every single church member who would faithfully teach or testify to the name of Christ 
had risk. And there's always risk. There's always risk. The coercive power of the state is most threatened by the complete power of Christ. And when we testify to the risen Lord Jesus Christ in word and deed, we are more a threat to coercive government than any other means possible. This is not just the word of a prophet. This is the word of a fulfiller of all prophecy, Jesus Christ. And this risen Son and glory offers these words as the first and the last who died and came to life. The first and the last is a way of talking about everything in between. It's like talking about the A to the Z, the whole thing. Who died and came to life is a way of speaking about Jesus actually coming, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. This is particularly relevant for us as we look into the Advent season, isn't it? God in the flesh. He couldn't die without living, but He came to die. So He was born into this world, and He lived a sinless life, but He was not rewarded by us for that sinless life. Instead, He was punished by the powers of this world, and He willingly laid down His life for our sins. And what it means for you, unbeliever, to receive the power of the gospel in your own life is to receive what He did for you as the only solution, as your only hope in this life and as you face your death. And surely you will face death with or without Christ. How much better to face death with the Emmanuel, God with us. He died and He came back to life. He has the keys to death and Hades. He has conquered our greatest fear, or what, is truly should be, what surely should be our greatest fear, and that is death. How do we overcome the shortness of this life, the effects of sin on our wrecked bodies? How do we avoid the ultimate penalty for death? Well, it's through Christ, who faced death, even death on a cross, and came out alive. He's the firstborn among the resurrection of the dead. And this text will go on to say that if we will trust in Christ, and if you, unbeliever, will trust in Christ today for your salvation, you won't have to fear what's called the second death, the Deutero death, the second death. And that is the death where God ultimately judges everyone according to whether or not they are one of His or whether they have rejected Him. And Revelation talks much about this judgment, as does the rest of the Bible. But Revelation makes clear that there is a greater fire coming for the enemies of God. That there is a lake fire of punishment for those that do not put their faith in Christ Jesus and humbly trust Him for salvation. You must trust Christ, but what a wonderful promise this is for those of us that do. All of us in Christ, we have a wonderful promise that we will not face the pain or the hurt of the second death. Let your eyes glance at the end of verse 11 briefly. It says, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Hurt. Death is a hurt. In church history, there was a father and a son who faced the Colosseum. They faced the wild beasts because of their faith. This father was asked by his son, Will it hurt? And the father told him the truth. Yes, son, but only for a little bit. Only for a little bit. We have to face death by telling one another the truth. Our hope is not in avoiding pain in this life. We are experts at avoiding pain and punishment. But what happens when, according to God's sovereign will, that we are supposed to face suffering and pain. What then? We need a greater hope. We need reminded of the fact that Christ in His power is not asking us to do anything that He did not do in laying aside our claims to power. We need to be reminded that our hope is not in escaping the first death, though we may for a while. Our hope is in escaping the second death. When David Platt writes of this text, he says, Jesus rewards His church. Every one of us believers, we are conquerors 
We're victors because of what Christ has done for us. We need only persevere to the end, and He is the insurance policy that we will. By grace, through faith, true followers of Christ will persevere to the end. First Peter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Who's doing the guarding? Your powerful Savior is doing the guarding. And aren't you glad in your frailty that you don't have to do the guarding? Aren't you glad that He does the guarding by grace through faith, true followers of Christ, work to persevere to the end? Truly, the Bible says in Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or Hebrews 3, 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Or Hebrews 10, 35, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Christian, Christ comforts you. He doesn't just warn you. And when the time is right for you to have to face suffering, He is not here to give the church at Smyrna a black eye. He is here to help you across the finish line of faith. Where you need to repent, repent and walk in faithful obedience to the Word of Christ, but that's not the message of the hour. The message of the hour is not to a Smyrna church that is perfect. Surely they were not. Surely He could have found something to correct them on. The message of the hour is that when you face the prospect of suffering, Christ's message to you is not to browbeat you in some kind of Wesleyan perfectionism. Oh, no. Instead, His message to you is He is powerful to help you across the finish line. This is Christ, our great power, and His power is wielded for you. His power is wielded for you. Christ helps us to prepare us to suffer courageously, faithfully, by sharing His power. The Puritan Richard Sibbs died in 1635 at the age of 58. The Lord took his eyes away, one wrote, that he might not see the great evils which were about to break out on his land. These great evils came to a head in the Civil War of the 1640s in England. Behind that event lay a movement away from the doctrines and practices of the Reformation, of the Reformation because of a powerful faction in the Church of England, backed by royal favor, by the powers that be. It was the Puritans who stood together to meet these inroads. To them, moderation in maintaining the truth of God's word was but sinful lukewarmness. A curse lies upon those, Richard Sibbs said, that when the truth suffers, have not a word to defend it. For Sibbs's boldness, he was reprimanded in 1627. And in 1632, along with 11 other Puritan ministers, he was sentenced to banishment, though the sentence was not carried out. Sibbs did live to see many of his dear friends, like Samuel Ward, Thomas Goodwin, John Cotton, Thomas Hooker, and others, imprisoned or forced into exile in Holland or New England. Such is our heritage. Sibbs said, A Christian is an impregnable person. He is a person that can never be conquered. Emmanuel became man to make the church and every Christian to be one with Him. Christ's nature is out of danger of all that is hurtful. The sun shall not shine, the wind shall not blow to the church's hurt. For the church's head ruleth over all things, and hath all things in subjection. Therefore let all the enemies consult together this king, and that power. There is a council in heaven which will disturb and dash all their counsels. Emmanuel in heaven laughs at them. And Luther said, Shall we weep and cry when God laugheth? Since its first publication, as I quote in 1630, the bruised reed has been remarkably fruitful as a source of spiritual help and encouragement for those who face the prospect of suffering. Sibbs wrote this, What a support to our faith is this, that God the Father, the party offended by our sins, is so well pleased with the work of redemption. And what a comfort it is that seeing God's love rests on Christ as well as pleased in Him, we may gather that He is as well pleased with us if we be in Christ. For His love rests, listen to this, 
His love rests in a whole Christ, the kind of Christ that's described in Revelation 2.8. In Christ mystical, as well as Christ natural, because He loves Him and us with one love. Let us therefore embrace Christ and in Him God's love and build our faith safely on such a Savior that is furnished with so high a commission. See here, for our comfort, a sweet agreement of all three persons. The Father gives a commission to Christ, the Spirit furnishes and sanctifies to us, to it, and Christ Himself executes the office of a mediator. Our redemption is found upon the joint agreement of all three persons of the Trinity. Richard Sibbs, the bruised reed. What we see in our first point this morning is that Christ prepares us to suffer. He even comforts us in our suffering by His power. Secondly, in verse 9, we see He prepares us to suffer. He prepares us with His personal awareness. He knows our comings and goings. Look at the two powerful verses, two powerful words in verse 9. It begins with, I know. I know. Imagine hearing them from someone that, like one said, told me everything I ever did. I know. Come meet him, she said. He told me everything I ever did. Terrifying, yes, and then tender. When it comes from the most powerful ruler in the history of the world, the first and the last. I know. It's not just terrifying and tender, it's also touching. His personal awareness of your comings and goings. Isn't our biggest fear in life being alone, not being understood, not being known, really? Isn't that part of what church membership is supposed to address, our loneliness in the faith? I know, I know, I know. We are, as a church, to remind one another of the tenderness of the personal nature of the Savior when we need to hear it. Far from forgetting what it is that we're going through or what the church at Smyrna was going through, or for that matter, any of his other churches, Jesus is intimately aware he knows. Well, what does he know? Well, it says he knows your tribulation, but pause on that for just a moment and look at the next two descriptions. He knows your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander, your slander. Now, the word slander is literally the Greek word transliterated blaspheme. It's blasphemy. He knows you're blasphemed. He knows that you're slandered against. He knows when you are misspoken of, when you're testified against wrongly because of your faith. And he knows the poverty that you face because of your faith. In this way, Christ, being personally aware of what you face, is a comfort to you. It's not just power distant from us like the deist thought. It is power personal to us. He says, I know. To everyone who has an ear to hear in the churches, I know, I know, I know. Now, fearlessness does not mean the total absence of dread. It just means a refusal to succumb to intimidation so that threats of harm do not turn us back from our duty to Christ. And His personal nature to us helps us prepare for the time of trial, for the time of tribulation. He says, I know. I know your poverty. Now, they were poor because of the wiles of these uh, Jews that are not Jews. These Jews that are a synagogue of Satan. Now, Everything that claims to be a church or a synagogue is not a church or a synagogue. There are certain requisite stipulations to make a house a house of faith. These were not worshiping in spirit and truth, to be sure. Jesus taught in synagogues. These Jews in the late first century A.D. had not recognized Jesus as Messiah, and they were undermining Christians. They were referred to here by Jesus himself, who knows and sees, as a synagogue of Satan. Now, carefully examine the words. Those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And then glance at the second sentence in verse 10. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. 
Notice the monikers given, back up at verse 9, to this ancient arch enemy of our Lord. He's called Satan or accuser. He's also referred to as the diabolical one or devil. He tempts us when he can get us to lapse into temptation, into sin through temptation, just go along to get along in this life. He certainly tempts us, but he also tests us with, will you be able to handle putting your pride aside when you are maligned for your faith? When you are testified against wrongly? You know, Jesus was. Do you remember what the Jews did to Jesus? We think of pain for the gospel as something that's an over. But there was a protractedness to the pain that Christ went through, wasn't there? As we are about the business of filling up the afflictions of Christ, should we not also expect not to be better than our master, but as his servant to face protracted pain? The devil can't get at you with simply tempting you to sin like some of these other churches with sins of the flesh such as idolatry or immorality. Perhaps in your pride they can get at you. What a comfort this is from Christ. He says, I know you're tempted not that you have a problem being a servant, as one pastor said, but you got a problem being treated like a servant. I know you're tempted to not like the way you're treated by the powers that be. I know you're tempted to go along to get along, but what happens when you just can't and still be faithful to Christ? What happens when your union membership requirements cannot be met if you are to maintain your church membership requirements? What happens when the tension between faithfulness to Christ and getting along in the world cannot be managed any longer? Manage it all you may, but the Smyrna church was on the precipice of no longer being able to manage that tension. Honor and nobility toward the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ was in direct, quantifiable opposition to honor toward the governing powers of the state. Now, this is not a problem we've faced much in America. Surely there are times that this country has acted dishonorably. But by and large, you could probably square getting along in this economy for most of America's history without directly violating your conscience as a Christian. So you might be tempted to think that this message has no bearing for you, but I'd like to remind you but there's this little thing called hate speech coming down the pike. What happens when to speak the true words of Scripture we're subject to the right charge of hate speech? Will pastors be willing to set in prisons again? Now, I wish that never to come upon this land, and I'll advocate and fight that it doesn't. But you have to be living in a box if you don't think that that's the way we're trending. Let the letter to the church at Smyrna, let it be a fortification for you. Let it be fortuitous for you. Let the letter to the church at Smyrna prepare you for what is to come. And you might say, Pastor, what if I fail? I say to you, you would be in company with many who have gone before you. In the early church, one of the three great persecuted eras of the church, there were ten different waves of persecution. It wasn't constant, but it was there. 
Domitian, the emperor, was one of those times, Nero before him, Decius after him, and in between. Before Constantine legalized Christianity in the 4th century B.C., Christians faced persecution in waves. And some of them didn't stand up to the persecution very well. They were called the lapsed. Cyprian wrote about the lapsed. And what should we do with the lapsed? Those that didn't stand up to the persecution well. Those that either outright denied their faith or violated their Christian conscience in order to avoid punishment for their faith. And I want you to know that while that is not our aim, those that have gone before us have failed in the moment, and we might as well, and we need to prepare now for not to fail, and if we do fail, for the grace and mercy of Christ. You know, I think about Peter, how many times he denied or misunderstood the purpose of Christ against the coercive powers of the state until Acts chapter 4 and 5 happened when he says, what a wonderful glory that I can be beaten up by this, this, this group for the name of Christ. He finally says in Acts 5, 40 and 41 and 42. I imagine Peter didn't start there, and you may not be either. In our pride, we don't start there. That's not where we start. In another wave of persecution against Christians, Thomas Cramner faced persecution. And at a point in his fatigue and his protracted imprisonment and debate, as wise of a man and well-read of a man as he was with regard to church history, he backed away from his testimony about the true faith. And when given an opportunity later, to recant his recantation, he did, and he faced death because of Christ after he lapsed. I feel the need to share that this morning because perhaps we live in the world in the greatest era of Christian persecution. Some calculate the deaths in the many, many thousands per year for Christian faith. It just hasn't met your doorstep yet. Your empathy for the voice of the martyrs is part of your application of Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 today. You are not to be thought of as too good to face this kind of persecution. In fact, Peter understood himself to be being entrusted with a sacred aspect of the faith when he was punished and suffered for the name. Could we ever look at it that way? Again, not defeatist. I'm not advocating that you ask for pain in some self-flagellating way. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying that when the time comes, if the time comes in this life, are you going to be ready? And if you never face that and you die of natural causes, will you give your life to empathizing and supporting those in other parts of the world that do? If you don't understand that as part of your Christian mission, you don't understand these are the words of Jesus Christ. What he says is, I know. I know. He says, I know your poverty. In all likelihood, the Jews who had an exemption from emperor worship were sticking it in the eye of the Christians and not allowing them to be considered Jewish Christians. You see, they were separating Christians from the Jews so the Christians would have no exemption. They created red herring arguments against the Christians of the day. They blamed them of incestuousness for taking the, I'm sorry, of cannibalism for taking the body and blood of Christ, of incestuousness for calling one another brother and sister. And the list goes on and on. And so the Jews were actually probably upset because many of their adherents, maybe even family members, have become Christians. They become one with Christ. And they were so upset about it, so, so angry, that they wanted capital punishment for the Christians. And they got it in some cases. In some cases, they got it. There are testimonies of Smyrna martyrs. One of them was a, a pastor, a leading figure in the church at Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. And Polycarp would have been a contemporary of the Apostle John. And he faced his death in A.D. 155. 
Polycarp, an old man then, as John would have been an old man when he wrote this revelation down in the AD 90s from the island of Patmos. So by AD 150, the formerly 20-something-year-old Polycarp, now in his 80s, in the AD 150s, found application for these words. He faced his death. And when he stood before the proconsul, when he stood before the beasts in the Colosseum, he took the harsher punishment. The Lord fortified him for that moment, 60 years after the tutelage of John, because when he stood there, he said, I'll take the flames. And he asked, actually, instead of me being bound, can I just die for a cause of Christ without my hands tied? And they untied him. It was interesting. He was 86 years old, and he famously, Eusebius, the church historian, records that Polycarp, when he responded to the proconsul, all he had to do was recant his faith. All he had to do was lapse, and he could have lived. And it was this old man, this wrinkly old man, and so the proconsul, at least at first, had some level of sympathy on Polycarp. And Polycarp, the pastor from Smyrna, when standing before this vicious, flesh-eating beast, these vicious, this pugilistic crowd that wanted Christians to die, having been sold out assuredly by the synagogue of Satan, by the Jews that weren't Jews. He said, 80 and six years has Christ been good to me. He said, I don't know how I could blaspheme him now, how I could slander his name now. I paraphrase. That's basically the words. He used the word blasphemy. I don't know how I could blaspheme him now. How could I slander the name of Christ now? A lot went into his preparation for that moment. You see, when you look at verse 9 of Revelation chapter 2, this personalness of Christ with his suffering, suffering servants is important. He knows. Now, we're going to see his presence in a moment, but I just want to talk about his personalness right now. He's personal with you. He knows your poverty and slander. When you cannot get the best job or into the best school because of your Christian faith and values, when when you are talked about, you, there's, you, there's a picture painted of you in the court of public opinion because of your faith. This is slander. It's blasphemy. But are you ready and prepared to take it? Will you, as Romans says in chapter 12, will you leave room for the Lord's wrath? Or will you have to take it all for yourself? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Same as salvation. This is part of what it means to be Christ's. And He comforts you and prepares you for suffering through His power. And He comforts you and He prepares you for suffering through His personal awareness of whatever it is you're going through economically, what you're being called, how you're being maligned, whatever the tribulation is. And He is with you whenever you face the ultimate. It's kind of a sign of trust for us to be allowed to face such things. I don't know that we're ready. I don't think I'm ready. I'd love to be ready one day. I'd love to be able to have the faith of my forefathers and mothers that, like Perpetua, those that would walk to their death. There's an ancient story. I, I can't tell you them all. You should read church history with regard to the martyrs, especially in the early church, in the time of the Reformation, and even today. You should read it and be comforted and encouraged and motivated by their faith. You should be. This is what this letter is about to the church at Smyrna. We've seen verses 8 and 9. We've seen points 1 and 2. Let us now look at verse 10 and discover our third point. Christ intends to prepare you for the day of suffering, for you to be courageous and faithful on the day of suffering. He intends to do that for you by His presence. Not just His power, not just His personal awareness of your situation, whatever it may be, but by His presence. Now, we can deduce His presence from many passages of Scripture. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. When two or more gathered in the courtroom of church discipline as fellow church members, the Lord promises to be with us, Matthew 18, 20. Emmanuel itself means God with us. We can infer, induce, I should say, we can induce Christ with us from all the pages of Scripture. We don't just have to see it in Revelation 2.10, but we do see it no less in Revelation 2.10. He is with us. It says in, in verse 10 here, 
do not fear what you're about to suffer. You see, he, he knows what's about to happen. He's not caught unawares. He knew the cross was coming. Now, this third of five imperative verbs in this short text, behold, do, sets to segment the chiastic structure of fear and faith and of writing and hearing, the other imperative verbs in this text. When he says, behold, there's something happening to break apart this text before your very eyes. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you in prison. We hit the apex of this thing. And what does it say? That you may be tested. Allowing to be tested in a compatibilistic way to throw around a theological word, in a Genesis 50-20 way to throw around a biblical history word, when Joseph said, they meant it for bad, but God used it for good. In a Romans 8-28 kind of a way, all things work for good for those that trust in the Lord. Not that all things are good, but that everything works for the good. This is our faith, that God is absolutely in control, and yet we are absolutely responsible. That God is absolutely sovereign still, and yet, in a Job-like way, in a Smyrnan way, the powers that be in this age are allowed to punish us without just cause. We need room in our theology for that. Fight for your constitutional republic. I'll fight with you. But there comes a point in every man's fight where the great fight against his own sin means that part of Christ winning is to trust Him when we're mistreated, is to walk with Him when we cannot jive it all, the powers of this world with the powers of our Lord. It means, faithfulness that is, means courage in the face of wrongful treatment in the world around us. And I feel it a dereliction of my duty not to prepare you for that, especially in light of the clear teaching of God's Word here, especially in light of events on the world scene. Please do not misunderstand me. When I see abject lying in the governing authorities, I will say it. When I see the mistreatment of the long-held values, and especially the value of religious liberty that we have held dear in this country, when I see it marginalized, if not actually outlawed, I will say it. But friends, like the Smyrnan church, if there comes a day where we don't just empathize with those on the mission field that die for their faith, but if there comes a day where our imprisonment is pending, I want you to be prepared by the letter to the church at Smyrna. Because if you aren't prepared, you'll surely lapse. And you won't only lapse, but you'll languish because you don't understand that there is historical and biblical and Christological precedent for this. The kingdom comes as the servants suffer. And he says, don't fear. Don't you fear? Don't fear this tribulation, what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some in prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Assuredly, an allusion to the book of Daniel where there was testing for ten days. For ten days you will have tribulation, testing by a, a king, a ruler that wanted to be worshipped. Did Daniel face so in their exile? So does this church at Smyrna. They're facing a ten-day-like tribulation, a tribulation that has an end to it. The Lord's not going to let the devil give you tribulation forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's no, 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 no. And what he calls us to be in the midst of his fear is not to trivialize the fear, but to be faithful even unto death. And His promise is not only that you'll avoid the second death and the lake fire of punishment with the unbelievers, but that He will give you the crown of life, the wreath of life. That in the midst of all these competitions at the Roman Colosseum where many of these martyrs met their Lord, in the midst of these beasts eating humans and Burned, being tied and burned at the stake. In the midst of these crucifixions under Nero and the like, you get the crown of life. Polycarp actually said, why should I fear the flames for but an hour? 
You rather should fear. He turned it back on the, on the proconsul. The, the, the flames that won't end. This lake fire surely has at least something in mind of being burned at the stake. That's what Polycarp, the great pastor at Smyrna, faced. That's what many of these Smyrnans, some of these Smyrnans faced. I don't know about many. I don't know if they actually died. But the non-Christian Jews, the synagogue of Satan, were orchestrating their malignment for such things. And they needed to be reminded of Christ's presence in the midst of it all. Marvin Alasky reminded us in his article in the most recent World Magazine, he said, on election day in 1770 in Massachusetts, 250 years ago, Pastor Samuel Cook preached a sermon to state leaders, including his majesty's council members, John Hancock and Samuel Adams. And Cook said this, he said, the true fear of God only, the true fear of God only is sufficient to control the lusts of men and especially the lust of dominion, to suppress pride, the never-failing source of wanton and capricious power. Cook said the true fear of God only is sufficient to control the lusts of men for power and for prideful, pleasurous pursuits. Friends, the only hope for Christians anywhere let alone Christians in a constitutional republic, is a return to the words of Pastor Samuel Cook 250 years ago. Only the true fear of God is sufficient to control the lusts of men. You will not squeeze them through policy alone. We must return to a fear of God, and that fear begins with us. Courage is a response to fear that is Christ-directed rather than flesh-directed flesh-directed, one wrote. It's not that fear isn't fear. I'm, I'm fear of the, the pain of, of, of persecution too. It's that our response to that fear is Christ-directed rather than flesh-directed. And this is a text that prepares us to receive the crown of life by walking through the way of tribulation, the way of hurt, the way of pain that we might be able to rejoice that we were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name as Peter did. This is not an easy message. The applications, in many ways, are futuristic. But I can think of a few in the here and now. Maybe you are the one that just doesn't earn as much money as you could because of your Christian convictions, your commitment to the Lord's Day, your commitment to not being a part of the malicious jokes in the break room. I want you to know that the Lord knows. Instead of earning all that you can earn, know that He has made you rich in the kingdom. His mercy is rich upon you. For the one in the here and now that faces slander from the opposition, that faces a kind of blasphemy that misrepresents you, especially if it's because of your manner of life that's in keeping with Christ. I want you to know this morning that He knows. That He knows the very numbers of hairs on your head and that He cares for you very, very much. I presume, though, that the real application is yet to come. It's to come in a day... Not today, but in a day away. I just pray that we have the wisdom to let someone else's experience be a great teacher for us. From biblical history to church history to modern history, we grip things worth dying for that we might find vigor for living now. Christ prepares us not to be passive on that day, but to be active with words of faith. He prepares us by reminding us of His power, of His personal awareness of our situation, and of His ongoing presence with us. We don't know where we come from or where we're going. If we don't know where we come from or where we're going, we won't know how to live right here where we are. And this is where theology is a tie that binds. Theology matters. Knowing these things matters. Learning from someone else's experience like the church at Smyrna 
is not only for the betterment of our own human flourishing, but also for a willingness to die for a long-term human flourishing that's only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When it comes your time to be in the arena, I want you to be ready. Smyrna Christians teach us from their experience what the Apostle Paul said, and that is to live as Christ and to die as gain. Won't you bow your heads with me and pray? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for wielding your power in such a personal and present way. Thank you for our church. Thank you for our recent members' meeting, for agreement, ministry, and mission for a new year. Thank you for this Advent season that is upon us. Thank you for your protection of our members and their health. Thank you for bringing guests to our church. Thank you for bringing us back to church today. Thank you for healing families. We ask that you heal, heal fractured families that are marked by the ugliness and sin of this fallen world. We know Satan attacks our families and our church, and so we pray for them now. We also pray for our governing authorities. We pray, we pray that propaganda would cease, that truth would prevail, and that we would all find a way to get along in you. We worship you as our great ruler. We ask you to send us leaders that would rightly reflect your attributes in our midst. We pray for our students as they study. We pray for ministries to students and children. We pray for those that are in the throes of spiritual warfare. We pray for families that have recently lost loved ones, like Alberta Fieber and the family of George Chastain, who's been a member of this church since the 1960s and who has now passed from these earthly scenes, whose services will be Wednesday at 2. We thank you for him and the service of his dear wife, Patty. We ask that you might take care of their family. We pray for a way out of this COVID situation. We pray for health in our land. We pray for time to preach the gospel in times of wrath that you might remember mercy. We pray for Jim Powers' wife, who's in deaconess with an ulcer issue. We pray for widows in our congregation like Mrs. Mildred Yunker, who lost her husband last summer. We pray for missionaries, missionaries to the Middle East, to lands nearer Ephesus and Smyrna of old, missionaries to Dubai and Turkey to Africa, to Myanmar. We ask you help us to know how to pray and how to work for the many things I've forgotten today to pray for. We ask that you cover over it and that you bless our study here in Revelation to the praise of your glory. Amen.